Hello everyone, I'm Abhijat Saraswath and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers and innovators. The future is of course a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fringe Legal, where I discuss the future of the legal profession with experts. Now, if you've been in the legal profession for any amount of time, then I'm sure at some point, someone will have told you that there are nuanced problems, it's very different, and things are difficult to change. Whether you buy into that across the entire legal tech ecosystem, looking at problem solving in legal when it comes to AI, there are some unique challenges. And I'm excited for this episode because we explore some of those challenges today. Before we get started, do note that during the conversation with Matthew, we jump straight into the deep end right at the beginning of the conversation. However, both Matthew and I make a concentrated effort to demystify as much of the jargon as we go through. And during the episode, we really do tackle why are artificial intelligence problems so difficult to solve when it comes to legal use cases? Why don't we have better performing models? Why don't we have models that actually work on any number of different data types or different types of documents or languages? Especially if you look at things like what's happening in the consumer world or if you look at even other business verticals where things just seem to be much, much further ahead. Why does it feel that the legal profession is still a long way behind? We tackled that and a lot more. Don't promise that we have all of the answers, but certainly we have a healthy discussion into why things are the way they are and what needs to happen to bring about change in the future. Before we dive in, if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, please do so. As part of the newsletter, I actually provided some additional commentary to supplement this episode, specifically discussing how things like synthetic AI are being used in other industry where there is similar challenge, that of small data sets with little variations. You can subscribe to the newsletter for free at fringelegal.com newsletter. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Matthew. I'm joined today by Matthew Golab, who is the Director of Legal Informatics and Research and Development at Gilbert and Tobin out in Australia. He leads a specialized in-house multidisciplinary legal informatics team that utilizes a variety of data analytics and e-discovery, as well as other AI technology tools. Matthew has more than 20 years of experience in the legal technology industry, including two of Australia's preeminent law firms. Matthew, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to chat legal tech. Fantastic. So we spoke briefly over the last couple of weeks and I know you have a very focused approach on a number of different areas, namely e-discovery, analytics, AI. For the conversation today, I'm going to put e-discovery a little bit outside of the scope of it, um, although of course we can touch on that. But I thought if we can start the conversation with uh, the data analytics and the AI, AI part, you and I, we had a quite a vibrant conversation around how problem solving for legal is pretty tough, and especially because of the data issues around that. Do you want to give us a primer on what some of those data issues might be? Sure. In terms of it being tough, many forms of general purpose tech, say you look at some Python script, which 
analyzes sentiment of text. That script will have been trained inevitably on Twitter, mm-hmm. and Twitter is short text. And in legal, it's very lengthy and very dense. And uh, another factor is when text is processed, so in NLP, natural language processing, typically the text is cleaned, filtered, cleaned, lemmatized, stemming, what have you, where semicolons, commas, full stops, hyphens, possibly case, all of this is stripped from the text. And sometimes it's boiled down to not necessarily changing synonyms, but they're trying to conform it to a model The challenge we have in legal is that language is very deliberate in a legal contract, in a letter output from a lawyer. And for us to have precision in legal, it's very important, the position of a semicolon. Secondly, touch very briefly on the density and the length of legal stuff, but you may be dealing with legal contracts that are 300 pages, or you may be dealing with, say, a legal contract 100 pages long, and then there's four letters which amend that legal contract. So when you think of that in hard copy, you say you have the 100-page contract, you then have the four letters. They make complete sense. You read it as a human in your brain. You've got the chronological one that each letter dealt with and amended or had dialogue regarding amendments to a section. And then you have a revised schedule. So you can keep that. But to a computer, it's looking at a sentence or a paragraph or at a document level. And so it's very difficult to then link what are very disparate concepts or or big blocks or blobs of text because they're all disparate. For both of those parts, the first point is, and this is just so I can reinforce my understanding, is generally a lot of the natural language processing models or ML models, machine learning models are trained on data sets, which are quite general, where the nuances of commas and other punctuations don't yeah. matter as much, but they're then applied to legal, where those things are placed in a very deliberate manner. So there's a certain meaning and therefore there's a disconnect. And then the second is the complexity and the contextualization where you may have something like Twitter, which has character limits and so on, versus three, 400 page documents. And then the addendums to that, which have huge meaning to a human being, but has very little contextual meaning to the computer, the model, uh, and that creates the issues. Yep, that's right. And, and of course you have, you know, the amazing potential with computers and natural language. There's three areas. I've jumped straight into the deep end of AI stuff, by the way. I don't mean, but if you think about it, you've got NLP. So you're processing or you're getting the computer to comprehend and understand natural text. Then you have something which is still not really solved is NLU, natural language understanding, where the computer's then able to comprehend or understand the meanings in the text. Mm-hmm. And then you have another one, which is NLG, natural language generation. Say so you had some super system where you built the system using all the super geniuses where you have 
in a black box all of the knowledge of different partners or different speciality, different specialists in areas of law. And you could simply ask it a question and giving it a couple of parameters, the system could get, generate a, an advice for you immediately. That would mm -hmm. be natural language generation. So you'd have natural language processing of verbal or, or audio or textual input understanding so the system is comprehending and matching that to some kind of pr precision or some kind of where it's guessing based on the previous training you've given it and then it then generates something new mm -hmm. and and the other thing yeah. is that these systems and when i say systems when the text when the technology or the open source tool is first introduced into the wild or it comes from some kind of laboratory or typically universities, PhD students and stuff, they're then typically built on Twitter or Wikipedia stuff. And, and so you've then got some issues with the assumptions, at, 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 meaning the, the scale, of, scale of textual, like the, the length of text and, and basically can they handle thousands of contracts at a time or thousands of documents. And then you've got the bias that would be within that corpus. So Wikipedia or, or Twitter or stuff based on news, all of that, they will have certain themes and topics in there that, so that system based on those tools would be very good if you're feeding it what is co content or data that it is familiar and they wouldn't be so good with stuff that's unfamiliar to it. For those that are maybe a bit less familiar with why we're talking about this, we'll come back to the problem as well. Uh, <laughs> we did just dive right into it, but let me give a little overview of how any sort of artificial intelligence models are built. And this is a very general overview. There are much more nuanced ways of doing this, but essentially you start with something that has data, hopefully cleaned and labeled data. Then you have your training code. So someone has, in your example, gone to the lens of writing a Python code to do sentiment analysis. So you can see if a tweet is positive or negative or neutral. You feed those two things into the next stage. At that point, you're actually building your model. So you're saying, great, looking at the accuracy of the code, the training code applied to the label data, what is the outcome, right? How accurate is that model? Then you have an iterative process at which point you're improving that. This is usually where the data scientists and the engineers and developers tend to be quite heavily involved. Then you work on deploying that towards a specific problem that you're trying to solve. And eventually you put that into production. So people who are not engineers or developers or scientists can utilize all of the work that's gone into it. So th that's the high level overview. What we're talking about is different. So far, what we've spoken about are different ways of generating those models in semi-intelligent way in terms of automated ways. So we talked about NLU, NLP, P and NLG, but the reason we're talking about all of them is because there is an issue, the two things we talked about around the specificity of the data and the context, the reason it matters for legal is because it's a nuanced area of the English or whatever language you're working with, and therefore the use cases are relatively nuanced, and we end up 
with people having or making an assumption that it is going to be as simple as we have a model, we have a document, let's put them together and you're going to get great results, which hardly yeah. ever happens to be the case. You've got a challenge that lawyers are under significant pressure. So when a client comes to Gilbertoe or other top tier law firms, they, they come to us because they have a problem they need us to solve. And yeah. we'd like to think that only our firm can solve that problem for them. But they're willing to pay for our services at the rates we charge for our expertise. And so the, the lawyers doing that work are under pressure to get it right the first time and to be very precise in their work and not make mistakes and try and ensure that they're very, I'm rolling around the same topic of reporting their time basically, but how do you do good work and faithfully record your time and not have lots of extra time that you're not mm -hmm. necessarily charging a client for that. And when you introduce technologies into that, there's very little margin for error in when you have a stressed lawyer or you have a big problem. It, it, it's a delicate balance as a technologist when you think there's a great idea that can help them it's not necessarily received the way you you would expect it to you as a technologist your tolerance for is it good enough maybe say at 80 percent or you're just very happy it actually didn't fail <laughs> but to a lawyer they just assume if it's going to augment their effort or multiply their efforts that it will be at least as good as them they're constantly under time pressure and so it's a conundrum because you've got to slowly introduce a pilot of any new technology to ensure that you've you've selected the right parameters that is successful and with every pilot sometimes it boils down to wrong timing wrong subject matter wrong person or wrong technology that until you um, actually use technology you just don't know. People can tell you, show you all sorts of stuff that looks great yeah. because they're showing you the stuff that looks great. Yep. But that it's a very different experience when no one else is there and it's, you know, two in the morning and, and it doesn't work. Yeah. And an important step I missed out as I was describing the process was post-deployment, especially with AI technologies, but really for any technology, there is this iterative and continuous process of monitoring, observation, and then you go back to, especially in AI, you go back and correct the model. But part of the issues as you described it is, as a lawyer, if your risk tolerance is so high that unless it's correct 100% of the time, you really don't have any margin of error for yeah monitoring and correction and that means that you're stuck between a rock and a hard place where you continuously test on closed data sets and therefore uh, absolutely right. you end up creating something that's perfect on certain types of documents but not on real life documents that you need that's to exactly right. and it may be that the lawyer you're talking to is open to it but the person they report to a senior associate or the partner that person may have had a bad experience. And, and so it's, it, it's a subtle, complicated path that you have, to, you have to go through to 
constantly improve and somehow unlock people's enthusiasm, their energy to try new things when that energy could have been used in a better way. In, but you don't know until you try it. So at the moment, and at the moment being the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months, maybe a bit wider, there's generally been a high degree of excitement and interest in AI technologies. And I'll be the first one to say I'm not a big fan of using the word AI. It's quite an umbrella term. A lot of technologies that utilize machine learning or NLP or other or deep learning or things like that. Do you find that helps to facilitate the level of interest and patience from the lawyer and the user population in wanting to try this? Or do you find that there is still, and this is my experience, there is a level of hype around this where people's expectations are frankly quite unrealistic because they are expecting the output to be perfect based on what they saw on a on a demo document that the model was trained on or do you think when they try it and they don't get the results they're generally open to saying actually it's getting better let's feed it more information there's there's a constant theme in the broader media in broader society about advances in ai and there used to be a dialogue for quite a while about threat to, you know, robots taking our jobs. And it seems to have been that the general message that has tapered off a bit, that the robots stealing our work and, you know, automation will steal our jobs. That doesn't seem to be as strong a message still there, but I wouldn't say in the general public that's a stronger message. And I would say it's generally positive, yes, that because that general message has been around for a while, it's not as negative that, mm. yes, there's um, broader acceptance. So it wouldn't necessarily say it's a major influence that things have changed recently. I'm probably a bit too deep and probably my firm is a bit too deep in we're, uh, we're pretty innovative as a firm. So I'm un unable to see how we compare, but uh, I think we do a pretty good job. That's good. So the answer to that question, what was the second question? So the second question was, and again, just based on what you said, it may be a difficult one to answer, but do you find that the level of tolerance is now lower to basically let the continuous improvement play out a bit longer? No, it, it, it's more, you have to just carefully curate your projects and pilots and pool of people who you ask. And so you're always looking for kind of the right combination of factors to, to test something out. Sometimes it may be that the lawyers come to you with, is there anything that can do this? So it's not always us finding things and presenting to lawyers and trying to find a pilot. Sometimes it's there is a need. Is there something that can help us with this? Yeah, you just have to, just have to be careful in, and also being very frank and open, and everyone going into it acknowledging that you're going to invest effort in this, and we'll all try to make it successful, but it may not be successful. So there's two things with technology. There's one of them is, are you investing your time in different ways, but the net result is you have to allocate a certain amount of administrative time in serving the tech yeah. so that it can serve you. And I think that's an important point because there is a, a 
front loading of effort with I would say probably with most tech that often is taken for granted and it's a change management piece so whether it's a training point training of the models or the human beings or both whether it's a education piece on this is the kinds of scenarios or workflows you may want to utilize this with or something else altogether depending on what you're trying to accomplish and how embedded it is and whether the technology is a disruptor or an augmentation type piece that will vary quite significantly and it's often missed piece because and that does actually have a very real impact on the adoption later on because then you don't get full utility because only some people are aware of it and i think it's an important piece really to think about as you're thinking and exploring the the problems you're looking to solve yeah and my second point was going to be that sometimes you have a really great win very early on and just that whatever that little win was that system and the effort that people put in they know there's a reward because they had a win or they're aware that, yes, you may have had to have done things differently, perhaps invest a bit more time in the tech, but you are saving time in, in other ways. Like you'd probably know yourself when you're doing some kind of automation, you might spend 95% of the time in broadening your list of exploiters that you use so you're not allowed to verbalize but you're using your head and bashing your head against the wall in just making something do something and the actual running of that as a technologist is super quick yeah. i've been tinkering with python at the moment and just doing a simple task we have a series of pdfs with tables in them we just want to extract the contents of tables so like around it, most of the effort is in wrestling with python because i'm yeah. an idiot and i don't understand python <laughs> i don't know how to program and, and the running is done in seconds yeah and i think you're right and that's probably the case with most things but it becomes much more evident when it comes to technology because the processing is so much faster and so much quicker. So we we talked a lot about AI. One of the things we didn't touch on, which we may want to is, and at the moment we've just been talking about what I would call relatively straightforward scenarios. We haven't added the complexity of variables in there of what happens if you're working across jurisdictions, what happens if you're working across languages. Yes, I'm in Australia. so. Our Australian language is based on the British system, so Commonwealth. And the concepts for a British system or a system built in the Commonwealth generally will be aware of or it'll be reasonably accurate for similar text or similar structures or similar concepts built in there and yeah multilingual the really difficult cjk chinese japanese korean the some completely monoglot i think as in i'm only an australian i know no other languages but when, when we're dealing with uh, multilingual in e-discovery it's if you're looking at pictures like mm. you have no comprehension what that string of characters is saying and you can only recognize say Hebrew or Italian or German or whatever, you can you recognize a pattern and after a while and someone tells you this means that, but you have no actual comprehension of what that is. And and that, that can be super difficult in how how adaptive how flexible a system is in being able to be used in ways, say, 
the, the original designer of the system didn't expect it would be used. Because obviously you think of cloud-based software, it's cloud-based. There is no sales. You just click download or you hit upload or whatever, off you go. <laughs> yeah. So you, that unless it's like geo-blocked where it just doesn't allow you from your IP address right. or your region, then you can you can use it generally. So yeah, it can, can be quite difficult. Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like one solution potentially to a lot of these is, well, the reason we have a lot of barriers here, understandably, but it's because in the consumer world, many of these things are trained on much bigger data sets and they're trained on open data sets, right? Uh, and therefore you get a you get you can account for variability you can account for geographies you can account for languages you also get things like capture and so on you get people correcting and therefore making the models a lot more accurate over time is that i assume we're here because of course <laughs> in the world of law firms and other practices as well it's not just specific to legal we don't have right no firms don't want to trade essentially what is their ip and open it up yes. to everyone else Correct. So we have the each matter we work on that that corpus or the, the content in that matter, if it's a dispute or regulatory or mergers acquisitions or whatever it is, that's highly confidential. And you're, you're only going to have the people who are working on that matter with access to that data. And that uh, that data has an expiry date. You work up, you're doing whatever task it is, and then the matter is over. So you, you're not going to touch the data again. So there's enormous difficulties for us in how can we tap into these very rich data sources within a law firm or in the broader legal market and improve products. Mm -hmm. And in, in some ways there's probably greater opportunities within a corporate. Like if you imagine, say, a large global resources company or telecommunications or, or something, right. that there would be enormous ways of very similar form-based documents that there would be variation over time, but that variation may be every five years. Or think about entities that have hundreds of thousands of employees, but yeah. there's enormous, enormous pools of information that systems could be tailor-made for those corporates. Whereas within a law firm, we may be dealing with each year hundreds of different corporates or clients. And so using a system that is tailor-made, basically is it a specialist system or is it a general purpose system? Obviously a general purpose, then it does an okay job generally yeah. for, for what it knows. But each client's data is going to be different. So you'll have sector-specific, so resources mm. sector, finance sector, where generally there's certain things you can repeat. But yeah, it's quite tricky in that. And then secondly, whatever. So we've got data is locked generally in the legal sector within law firms and then in the courts. And, and so not to, not to criticise legal publishers, but generally information is is restricted so it's basically but so you, you can't necessarily go and harbor if you think of systems out there that harvest wikipedia harvest yeah. linkedin harvest all sorts of things and then they're built 
on open, whether they're allowed to or not. These systems are yeah. built on those, whereas generating legal, that's not the case. Right, you're not going to go and harvest a precedent bank to learn about a whole bunch of things from because that, that's it's, and it makes sense why that's not possible because a lot of those companies now are now developing their own solutions because well yeah. they have some advantages a they have large pools of data b the data is actually pretty well labeled compared to most things they know which jurisdiction it belongs to which types of practice what kind of document year all of those kinds of things and of course then they want to commercialize it which again there's nothing wrong with any of those things but it certainly does seem to perpetuate the problem and i guess the it's one of those short-term pain versus long-term gain kind of issues right because if everyone agrees hey let's do this then a lot of the problems tend to go away but of course commercially the world doesn't work that way mm -hmm. so we end up in the tussle and are you seeing improvements you've been in the space for 20 plus years where we are and just general technological improvements notwithstanding where we are in terms of how quickly things are improving from a uh, i guess from the science and the methodology point of view is that improving so are more well, people thinking about solving these problems yeah so probably the biggest improvement i've seen with legal tech from within law firms is improvements in Microsoft Office and Office 365 and cloud. Cloud from a scalability and generally you don't, you don't really have the concept of updating versions anymore, that it's real time in a way, but definitely the scalability. And if you think of Office today, like Word or Excel or what have you, on your phone, on a tablet, on a Mac, on a Windows, on Linux, cloud, that it, it, it's pretty amazing. It was a fairly recent thing, like, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago that Office left behind the desktop office and desktop office is still around, but yeah. how quickly Office 365 has has and continues to change things. So that's my first answer. Um, oh, things... So you, you were asking about methodology. So, yeah. so I guess that, that kind of boils down to analytics in a way, that the science meaning measuring things. Mm -hmm. And so in law firms, we record our time. So you've got that kind of measurement, and then you've got the interesting aspect of looking at narratives in time recording and looking at, say, profiling matters by subject, so practice group or sector or partner or type of client. So yes there's a slow and steady movement just just overall in more thought is going into designing systems to track statistics and usage and dashboards and all sorts of stuff i wouldn't say they're natural skills that they're not necessarily innate in lawyers in yep. that kind of thinking but yes yes there's definitely a trend in that direction yes Awesome. And yeah, I'm conscious of time. I, I guess in in wrapping up, and I think you may have answered part of this, what's your general outlook? So I, I wouldn't ask you to predict <laughs> what the future holds. Is your outlook towards in the direction that we're moving, the pace that we're moving? Is it generally positive? You think where we're headed? De de definitely positive. Yeah. I think this last 12 months ha has... It, eventually we'll get over the pandemic but 
the way business is done and the way technology is used will have cha fundamentally changed. So, and, and you only have to look at, say, you and I are on a Zoom call right now. So you're in Chicago, I'm in Sydney, Australia, <laughs> and we're, we're chatting away. And you think of courts and hearings that they're not in person anymore, they're, they're remote. And if you'd had a plan and were working with a court, that plan would have been years on length to, to get to this point. And very rapidly, those all those courts were, were, were flicked to digital with the occasional cat filter. And there's also the change in if your systems are designed that you can have VPNs or some, some secure way of remotely working that you can work. But yeah, absolutely, that it's a positive in the way technology is changing things. You know, and then as a technologist, I, I don't, I just see all the headaches where things go wrong and you know stuff. Yeah, but you're optimistic because um, yeah. there's always something new and th things are yes improving. Yeah, good. And yeah, I think that last point you touched on is so important because I realise uh, all of this conversation we've been focusing very much on all the problems that exist, but that's because it's technologies that are focused on solving those problems. So the actual solutions that are presented to the end users are smoother and there's less problems. They're never going to be perfect systems, of course, but that's the important point. And really for me, it was important to at least have a general understanding, but for my benefit and that for my audience of like, what are some of the issues and why is it so difficult to solve these problems within the legal profession? Because if you look at the consumer world, sometimes it seems ridiculous why are we why do we even talk about ai being so difficult but i think this gives us and certainly for me it gives me a good understanding of why that's the case and there are difficult problems to solve and the good thing is we have people like yourself who i'm going to venture a guess are excited by solving hard problems even if it takes a while but no this has been a wonderful conversation thank you so much matthew and if people want to find you i'll include your linkedin profile details in the show notes anywhere else people should go and find out more about you no linkedin is fine I, I will link to the linkedin as that seems to be probably where people will come with the most relevant questions if they want to explore further on some of the topics we talked about but thank you once again i appreciate it thank you for your time and all the show notes are available at fringelegal.com if you're listening to it on youtube or linkedin or elsewhere you will find it within your app thank you so much matthew thanks Ab. much appreciate if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswood. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Saraswood is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.